This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Veterans in Colorado are getting a new hospital set to open in August, but it won't have everything they need. In fact, parts of the old VA hospital will have to stay open, even though they're outdated. It's all baffling to one doctor who's watched as the new hospital has been delayed and gone way over budget. Dr. Phil Rowe chairs the House Committee on Veterans Affairs and is a Republican representative from Tennessee. Congressman, welcome to the program. Nathan, thanks for having me on. You recently toured both veterans' hospitals, the old one in Denver and the new one still under construction in Aurora. What struck you the most from these visits, particularly to the new hospital? There are a lot of things if I had built that hospital, and I have fortunately been on the end of building three hospitals in my home community. I wouldn't have made it look exactly like this one, but it is a huge, amazing facility. And I do want to do a a shout-out, the uh, spinal cord rehab beds, which there are going to be 30 new ones there. It's a new service. It is a spectacular, I, I can just say that as a physician, it is a spectacular building. And I think that the quality of care there will be second to none anywhere in the world. So there are a lot of good things. There are a lot of other things in there that should have been designed differently. One of the distressing things that happened here was we went from a 1949 building with 600,000 plus square feet to over 1.2 million square feet and actually cut the number of outpatient, a number of primary care teams almost in half, which made no sense to me whatsoever. In the long run, Nathan, it may end up, believe it or not, working out in our favor because what we're going to have to do is take those primary care teams that are left in the old facility and then find new outpatient spaces for them out in the community where the veterans really live instead of making them drive in. And many of our veterans, like I am, are getting older. And so uh, getting around from a big parking garage into a, a huge facility that can be very intimidating, have the clinic out in their neighborhood where they live. But with that said, and we're going to let's get some context here. You're talking about these primary care rooms that are in the new hospital there. Yes. Uh, the new hospital is 34 rooms compared to 60 at the old hospital. That's correct. That um, is correct. Now, if you're pushing these primary care facilities out into the neighborhood, where's that money going to come from? I mean, it shouldn't have been put into this hospital uh, where the money was allocated. Nathan, I I, uh, I can tell you, I used to have hair on my head, and this this uh, project out there has almost made me lose what's left. And I don't know how you could have built a hospital that started at six hundred million dollars, which is a huge amount of money, end up with one point seven billion built, and then take another three hundred. $40 million or so to open it up, to get it open. So you're over $2 billion and you have less capacity for outpatient care, which is where health care is going, than you started with. That, and, and I want to note that a, a PTSD treatment center was also not constructed at this hospital. Because and, and you're absolutely right. And there are fewer psychiatric beds in this facility than the old facility. So there are plans to build the new PTSD facility, which I went through. And as a matter of fact, while we were there, talked to the veterans and listened to them. And they liked where they were and complimentary of the care that they were getting. One, one man I remember told me it felt like it had turned his life around. You and your colleagues in the House, including Republican Mike Kaufman from Aurora, are still searching for answers about how expensive this new hospital has turned out to be and why it still doesn't meet totally expectations, despite being way over budget. You had a hearing as recently as last month, but you you really weren't satisfied with the answers you got there. Why not? I think the thing that frustrates me the most, I know when I went in the operating room, 
I knew who was responsible. It wasn't the anesthesiologist. It wasn't the scrub nurse. It wasn't the circulating nurse. It was Phil Rowe, Dr. Rowe, who was responsible. And that's what we should have had here where somebody took responsibility and said, I'm going to run this project, bringing in under budget and on time. And that's why we got the uh, Corps of Engineers involved. And we've just said the VA can no longer be uh, allowed to do this. And the VA officials have said they're going to make changes to make sure this won't happen. Again, in, in their view... You uh, you sent a letter to the VA, which we have at CPR.org, if people want to view that. And you wrote that the VA staff showed a, quote, callous disinterest in taking responsibility. What do you want to accomplish with that letter? When we get conflicting testimony, we want somebody to take responsibility for that. I had to do that my entire life. And so when someone comes and testifies in front of my committee right here that's represented by both Democrats and Republicans who represent a large swath of this country, I want the truth told. And I don't want to look up later and find out that the truth was not told. And that's my concern is I, when you come up, I, look, if it's, if it's bad news, just tell me the bad news. I've had to do that for patients for years and explain why it is. And nobody expects everything to go perfect, but I do expect you to be honest with me when you come up here. And I'm not talking about just making a mistake or not understanding something, a, a, a process right. We've all done that. But I'm talking about coming up and deliberately misleading me. That I don't like. Do you expect something to happen because of this? Do you expect some, some firings to happen because I, of this? I, I, expect, I, I would expect this committee, not just me, but I would expect this committee would expect some action, yes. Uh, you asked the Department of Justice to prosecute two VA officials a couple of years ago linked to, to the hospital. The DOJ declined to do that, and at least one of them was later promoted. So at this point, has anyone really been held responsible for the massive cost overruns and the delay in opening this hospital? In a short, no. Um, and, and one of the things we did do in 2017 was uh, pass an Accountability and Whistleblowers Act that allows the secretary to dismiss people who are not performing properly. Is there anything else you as a congressman or, or Congress can do to, to have some accountability here? Regardless of how beautiful the, the hospital is and, and what it will do for veterans, there are still major issues that need to be taken into account. There's no question about that. And I think, again, I said we've given the secretary did not have the tools. Um, when he first started his uh, position last year, he said, I have to have this tool to be able to, to fire people who are not performing uh, appropriately. And they've used that tool that we passed last March or April when the president signed it into law. And it's been used. I think they have about 1,400 people that they have moved from this massive organization. Remember, the VA has over 300,000 employees. It's a huge organization. And, and speaking of accountability, Congress got wind that things weren't going well with the Aurora Hospital by at least 2015. There was a moment in the committee last month where one of the members, Democrat Mark Takano from California, said this. Two and a half to three years ago, this committee authorized additional funds to complete the replacement facility. This committee decided to reduce the scope of the facility by not funding the PTS inpatient or the assisted living facilities. So to act shocked that part of the old facility will still need to be used moving forward is ridiculous. We knew what we were doing, and now we decide, do we invest the money or, so we can move uh, uh, everything to the new campus, or do we keep the status quo and continue to use it as a political pawn? It would be hard with a straight face, Nathan, to say we didn't provide money for this hospital when it's 300% over budget. And there's a point in time where you just have to say, stop. And that's what the Congress, it's embarrassing for me to go home to my district, which is rural Appalachia in East Tennessee, 
and and tell folks that we've gone over taken a six hundred million dollar uh, project and now made a two billion dollar project out of it. So there had to be some adults in the room stand up and say, "No, this is where we stop," and that's what we did. And you can't just keep doing things when it's not being done right. So it will eventually be done uh, as we move forward. But boy, I tell you, this this is a poster child for what not to do. I can tell you that. As I mentioned, Congressman, parts of the old hospital will have to stay open. We've heard from a veteran who says he gets really good care there. The VA doctors do very well, but the facilities themselves are run down and have been ignored. He compared some of the bathrooms, for example, to a third world country. Uh, I I didn't hear this come up in your recent congressional hearing, uh, but did you notice problems at the old hospital when you visited that, that the conditions aren't what you hoped they would be? You know, it's it's a, almost a seventy year old facility, and so you can you can expect that a seventy year old facility is not going to look like a brand new one. So he is the veteran is correct. They do I think they do get good care. I was impressed by the staff there, and and I think their their motives are good, and they'll make this new place work. And once they get into the outpatient clinics as they come along, and I'm thinking three to five years is about what it will be. Now, is it true that if the old hospital is still being used in in five years, uh, the one in Denver, there are going to have to be improvements? Uh, Where is that money going to come from? And and, uh, is that part of the review process there? It is. And what what we're doing uh, over time is that we want to get the VA right-sized. We know that 36% now of all VA care is provided, clinical care I'm talking about, is provided outside the VA hospital system. And more and more veterans are using the CHOICE program to get timely care. But does that mean there may be this brand new hospital in Aurora that may have fewer doctors and fewer staff because most of the care is being provided outside of that centralized location? No, you'll still have that. The care that you provide now is in a hospital, the difference is it's much more sophisticated care. Congressman, I want to turn now to some breaking news from Wednesday about unethical behavior by the head of the VA, David Shulkin. It's about gifts and trips by Shulkin and a member of his staff. How could all of this affect the Colorado hospitals? Well, it could. Look, I think Dr. Shulkin is doing a great job. And I met with the IG this morning along with the senators and, and Representative Walls. And I think you need to let this story play out and get the truth out. And it will come out. And I think Dr. Shulkin should continue in his position. I think he's done a great job. Some of these things I listen to, and I don't think a lot of them amount to much of anything other than some administrative things. So I, I believe that um, Dr. Shulkin should stay where he is. Congressman, is turnover at the VA at the highest levels uh, maybe the root of this problem that we're seeing with the, the hospital project going way over budget and, and, and taking so long to complete? Yeah, it could be. And I think that the VA lacked the expertise, quite frankly, to take on a project of this size. Congressman, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me. I look forward to visiting you guys out there when it opens up in August. So I'm really excited about that. Dr. Phil Rowe is a Republican representative from Tennessee. He chairs the Veterans Affairs Committee in the House. And we talked about the Veterans Hospital in Denver and the new facility set to open in Aurora in August. We reached out to the VA for comment on Rowe's letter and this interview. A VA spokesperson says they appreciate the congressman's concerns and will respond to him directly. Companies around the world increasingly use technology to recognize and motivate employees for their work. A Boulder-based company has added a twist to that. They're the focus today in The Disruptors, our continuing coverage of the startup world. Raphael Crawford Marx thought up the idea of bonusly one night over beers in Brooklyn. 
His company was recently named Forbes Startup of the Week. Also with us is Steve Bowes, who organizes an annual international conference on technology and human resources. He joins us from Rochester, New York. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you, Nathan. Raphael, Bonusly is a way for companies to offer all kinds of employee recognition, but a signature part is that bonuses don't necessarily come from your boss, and they're not traditional bonuses. Can you explain that? Uh, Yeah. Bonusly uh, empowers all employees to recognize one another with what we call micro-bonuses. So these are in-the-moment, day-to-day recognitions of those small wins uh, that all employees Uh, accomplish on a daily basis that add up over time to big wins for the company. And anyone in the company can recognize anyone else with a micro bonus. So like, hey, congratulations, you did a really good spreadsheet. Here's a bonus or something like that. Yeah. Or thanks for teaching me that trick uh, or that Excel formula or, you know, covering for me when I was sick, anything like that. And what kind of rewards are these? Uh, they are uh, written recognition. So uh, it's very important to call out a specific behavior or accomplishment that you're recognizing. Uh, but then attached to that are uh, some points. And those points can be redeemed uh, over time for different rewards. It can be company-branded merchandise. It can be travel. It can be gift cards. There's a, a, a huge reward catalog that Bonusly provides, uh, and that can also be extended by by the company if they wish to do so as well. Now, you're not the only company that does this kind of peer-to-peer recognition. When did you first think of this approach? Uh, back in 2012 was when we started discussing the idea, my co-founder and I. And uh, at that time, there there wasn't anything, uh, there weren't any companies on the market doing it at that time. Uh, there now are, but, but at the time, it was a really new idea. And, uh, you know, the first few companies that we talked to about it were pretty skeptical about it. But uh, there's been a real sea change in the awareness of the importance of recognition in uh, motivating employees and engaging them and, and retaining them. Was there a, a situation in your life that prompted you to, to think about this? Uh, yeah. Uh, both my co-founder and I had worked at a variety of startups as well as larger tech companies, both as individual contributors and as managers. And uh, as as individual contributors, as people who were managed, uh, I think both of us had experienced times when we really felt kind of like, is anyone noticing what we're doing? The company's getting bigger. Does any does anyone care what we're doing? Is what we're doing really impacting the the mission of the the company? Uh, and that can be a very demotivating feeling to have. Uh, and then both of us as managers had experienced kind of a flip side of that, which is managers are given this really daunting task of motivating and 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 engaging their direct reports, but they don't really have a lot of great tools. To do that, uh, if you're managing 20 people, you can't really see day-to-day what each one of them are doing and individually call out those contributions. So what Bonusly allows uh, to happen is it kind of distributes that and kind of crowdsources recognition and allows everyone to give everyone else recognition and feel like their work really matters. And so you're seeing evidence that that recognition from peers fosters this productivity and employee satisfaction. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you use Bonusly at Bonusly? Oh, of course. Yeah, we, we, we've we used it from, from day one, from the moment we built the prototype, we used it internally, uh, which was, it was, you know, at first it was just me and my co-founder, which is a little bit odd, but now we're a company of 20 people and it, it really makes a difference. You know, even at 20 people, uh, I don't always know what everyone's working on. We're big, we're you know big enough that that I don't have direct on the ground awareness of what everyone's doing. But I see this feed of bonuses that are being exchanged by 
the entire Bonusly team, and I really have a sense of who's doing what and who's accomplishing what, and it's it's great. Steve Bose, I want to bring you in here. Is there other evidence that you see on a, on, a, on a larger scale that something like this is actually working and is being used by companies around the world? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it's important to think about the context that we're existing in, that organizations are existing in now, right? We are aware of unemployment at a very low rate, about 4%, a record high of open job listings right now, and also a record low in the ratio of unemployed persons to these open job listings, right, which make things like a talent attraction and more particularly talent retention incredibly important for most organizations, not just tech companies. It's every company, right? One of the hardest jobs to fill right now in America is commercial truck driver, right? So organizations are increasingly looking at tools to support better work environments, better work-life balance, cultures that are more open, transparent, and recognition is a huge part of it. And so Raphael and his team touched upon this idea at just the right time, right? In 2012, when the economy was starting to improve and all of a sudden the labor market started tightening and employees have more options, the idea that my my work product, my efforts, my contribution to the organization will be seen will be rewarded, and I'll be appreciated for the, the hard work and the good job I'm doing. It's critically important, and uh, as Raphael suggested, it's being taken up by many, many organizations now. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're speaking with human resource expert Steve Bose. Bose writes and edits for Human Resource Executive Magazine. Also with us is co-founder and CEO of Boulder-based Bonusly. The company offers a web-based approach for workers to give their colleagues bonuses. It's part of the disruptors or coverage of startups in Colorado. Uh, Steve, do you have proof that companies benefit when they offer a platform for recognizing employees and and whether there's a special benefit from peer-to-peer recognition on the scale? Yeah, there is proof of it. I, talk, I talked to a woman yesterday, vice president of human resources from an 8,500-person advertising company who've implemented a, a similar kind of approach to recognizing a good work. And she told me very directly that it's improved their ability to retain workers. It's improved uh, actual business results as well in offices where they've implemented these kind of peer-to-peer and and recognition-based tools. They've improved margins. They've improved client retention. They've improved the the overall kind of employee engagement level. So it, it definitely is working. And there's lots of data that shows the reasons why people would like to stay with an organization. And it's tied up in things like recognition, connection to the overall mission and goals of the company, and an understanding of how their individual effort and their work product contributes to those organizational goals. Surrounding all of that is this idea of transparency and openness and platforms like Bonusly and others that make these things, they surface these rewards and recognition moments. And they really also have the ability to tap into and recognize those uh, unsung heroes in the workplace who in a traditional uh, organizational environment with traditional approaches to, say, performance and rewards may go unrecognized. So it's definitely working in organizations that have adopted these approaches. And, and Raphael, in general, why not just a shout out at a meeting or, or maybe some extra money you know, in a paycheck for a job well done? Why this route? Uh, yeah, well, a shout out in a meeting uh, – doesn't scale. Uh, so you imagine a, an organization like the one Steve cited with 8,500 employees. Um, every one of those employees is probably contributing wins on a daily basis that could be recognized with a platform like Bonusly. But if you're trying to shout them out in the meeting, that just doesn't scale to shouting out those 8,500 wins. Uh, it also has to do with when you get 
give positive feedback, it creates this virtuous feedback loop where I do something that I get recognized for that creates value for the company, and then I become more likely to do it if I get recognized for it in a timely fashion. And so if I yeah, don't get recognized add, for it, then that that you kind of lose that. Steve, yeah. Yeah. I, I would also add, Nathan, that that shout out in the meeting, we'll forget about that two weeks from now. Right. And we won't be able to understand that it happened. We won't understand the context that happened in. And when it comes time for annual performance reviews, say, or annual salary increases and things like that, especially in larger organizations, we'll forget it ever happened. With tools like Bonusly and these kinds of platforms, managers and organizational leaders, can we'll, we'll, we won't lose that shout out. We'll know it happened. We'll be able to understand why it happened and when it happened in the context and when it happened. And that's really important to provide kind of this idea of fairness and recognition of my contribution to the organization in an overall perspective. Steve, several large companies have given one-time bonuses to employees in the wake of Trump signing the new tax bill. They say it's given them extra cash to give to workers. How would you compare that approach to rewarding workers versus this idea of using technology to give out these smaller bonuses over time? Hey, there's nothing wrong with a $1,000 bonus, right? I think my perspective on that is it taps in a little bit to this idea of labor markets being really tight, competition for workers at all uh, all spectrum, right, of the labor force is really tight. And I feel there's a little bit of, you know, we have to do this because our competitors are doing it too. Uh, I think more meaningful, and it, it's probably not an impact on overall retention and overall long-term well-being of the organization than, say, a consistent approach to rewards, recognition, and contri- recognizing contributions over time, which may or may not even cost less than the $1,000 bonus. $1,000 bonuses are great. I don't think they'll, they'll move the needle too much in an organization as, say, a consistent approach to recognizing performance and contribution could be. And Raphael, just just briefly, going back to this this type of small reward, I'm wondering if a, if a, sh- a cutthroat environment in a workplace might make peers reluctant to praise each other, or maybe that workers are too nice and they generate too much praise for for, for their workers. Uh, I certainly haven't heard anything or seen any evidence about about too much praise. Um, what is interesting and and something that you know, we've had success with that actually surprised us a little bit is. Bonusly being successful in traditionally more cutthroat environments. Uh, for example, uh, Bonusly has been adopted by a, a very sales teams, uh, which you know can be thought of as quite cutthroat, quite individualistic. Uh, but certainly, as uh, technology changes and the economies change, and and you can't, you have to collaborate with your your teammates, even on a sales team. Uh, tools like Bonusly can really help foster a greater spirit of collaboration, which is necessary for business success. Raphael, Steve, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Steve Bose runs an international conference on technology for human resource executives. He joined us from New York. Raphael Crawford Marks is co-founder and CEO of Boulder-based Bonusly, recently named Forbes Startup of the Week. Bonusly has a web platform for companies to recognize their employees that includes a way for workers to give bonuses to each other. And it's part of the Disruptors, our coverage of Colorado's startup community. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. And I'm Ryan Warner. We usher in the Chinese New Year today. And what better way to celebrate than with food? We visited a restaurant in downtown Denver called Hop Alley, where the head chef gave us a crash course in Chinese cooking. My name is Jeff Cox. I'm a chef here at Hop Alley. I will be making mapo tofu. It's actually a riff on a traditional Sichuanese dish, but we kind of do it a little differently here. 
So we'll get our wok ripping hot. We add some soybean oil as the base. We add some house meat chili oil that we actually make in large batches. We add what we call the holy trinity of Chinese cooking, which is our garlic, ginger, and scallion. So then from here, we start our, uh, our mole base. Now our mole is made of pasilla negro, pasilla chili, uh, and guajillo chilies. And we also uh, cook that down with some nice French 87% cocoa chocolate. So it's kind of Mexican meets Chinese at this point. It's interesting, the name Mapo Dofu actually means pockmarked grandma. And that comes from the Sichuan town it's from. Uh, an old woman would cook over the wok so much, they say that she got so many burns in the face, she became pockmarked. And from there we add our ground pork. So that goes into the wok with everything else and gets seared off takes on the flavor of all the aromatics and from there we add some tofu we really like silken super soft tofu tofu that has been pressed for very long so it's very delicate creamy to the taste so um many people think of or in the western world think of tofu as a meat substitute with chinese cooking it's really an essential additional ingredient often served with meat you see the flames that are licking up from the wok we refer to that as wok high which you get that unique flavor that can only be captured in a wok on a heavy butane burner because you can recreate mapo dofu at home and it's delicious, but it'll never quite have the flavor that it does coming out of a real wok. And that's, uh, there we have it. Our visit to Hop Alley launches our new cooking tour of Colorado. We're going to meet chefs across the state and get the stories behind their food, from five-star restaurants to food trucks. Tommy Lee owns Hop Alley, and Jeff Cox joins us now in the studio. Welcome to you both. Hello. Thanks for having us. So I want to start with the name and location of the restaurant. Uh, It gives us insight into the history of Chinese immigrants in Colorado. What was Hop Alley? Uh, so back in the 1800s, um, Hop Alley was actually – well, Hop Alley was the nickname for the original Chinatown in, in Denver. Uh, it was located um, between uh, Wazi and Larimer, kind of around 15th and 17th Streets. Okay. Um, then it migrated back – or down towards Lodo, towards uh, currently where Coors Field is. Um, so we're located at 35th and Larimer, so we're close to the original – Chinatown. And what does hop mean? I associate that with beer. Uh, so the, the name Hop Alley actually was somewhat derogatory. Uh, the, the hop in Hop Alley was actually referring to opium because uh, the original Chinatown had a lot of opium dens and a lot of Americans or locals would go down there and smoke opium. Okay. Not the case at the restaurant today. Not that we know no, of. No, not that you know of. Okay. Uh, and Chinese immigrants came to this area, uh, many of them, to work on the Continental Railroad. Is that right? That's, uh, yep. That's what I believe. Uh, your family is Chinese. When did you get interested in making Chinese food? Uh, yeah. My, my, fam- my parents are both from Hong Kong, and they moved to the United States for uh, college. Uh, my dad was a great cook. His mom was a great cook. So growing up, my dad was cooking us dinner, you know, five, six nights a week and I'd watch him and it was just something I grew up with. And I also got to travel to uh, Hong Kong many times when I was a kid. So I grew up pretty, pretty spoiled as far as a, a food background. What were those trips to Hong Kong like? What do you remember about the food there? Uh, you know, it was a mix of, you know, lowbrow and highbrow. Uh, you know, Hong Kong's a global city. So 
Um, most of the time, the first meal we had off the plane was me and my dad would go get a bowl of noodles at a little shop, you know, in a, in a, in a small street. And then we'd also go to these grand banquets at, you know, hotels and have, you know, multi-course meals where it was a blend of, you know, Asian and European. So, um, I feel, everything. I feel like I so often hear that American Chinese food or Americanized Chinese food is really different from food, say, in Hong Kong or, say, in mainland China. Is that the case? Uh, You know, there's – Americanized Chinese food has shimmers of, you know, what traditional Chinese food is. Um, American Chinese food is mostly based on, I would say, Cantonese style, which is, you know, more your gravy and, you know, those flavors. Um, But, you know, American Chinese food just evolved in, you know, to accommodate, you know, American palates where – Things people like things sweeter, people like things you know saltier. Um, so you know the composition of American Chinese food is still relevant to traditional, but obviously uh, in traditional Chinese food, there's much more varied flavors and maybe more spice in certain you know provinces. But uh, ultimately, traditional Chinese food is very regional. You know, there's you know a lot of regions in China, and every single one has its own flavor profile. And American Chinese food is more, you know, your baseline of sweet and sour and sesame and things like that. So this is the year of the dog. And I read that there's a list of lucky foods to eat during Chinese New Year. Fish, for example, means an increase in prosperity. Uh, Do you have any food that you serve or like to eat around the Chinese New Year? Uh, Actually, right now we're uh, serving a sashimi set that is actually referred to as Yusheng, and it actually gained popularity in the Chinatowns in uh, Malaysia and Singapore. But it's actually a bunch of spun vegetables uh, dressed with thinly sliced fish over the top. And when it hits a table, we encourage diners to use their chopsticks to toss it up into the air. Huh. In a celebration, they say the higher you toss it, the more prosperity in the new year. And the harder to catch it. Oh, of course. Okay. And so we definitely embrace the Chinese New Year as a chance to play with our menu and have kind of a celebratory air in the dining room. Well, Jeff Cox, you uh, made that lovely dish for us at the restaurant, and you've brought it with you, the Maobao Dofu. And I'm going to eat it, uh, I think, at like room temperature because mm-hmm. it, it can be eaten cold or hot. Mm-hmm. And I love the description of the silky tofu. Let's get a taste of this. Oh, yeah. It just like melts in your mouth. And I really taste the mole. I was surprised to hear about mole in Chinese cuisine. Are you adopting something from, say, Mexican cuisine with that, or are there different kinds of mole around the planet? Uh, Yes, we are. I got to credit our sous chef, George, with having the idea. We're always looking to take traditional recipes and put a little bit of a spin on it, Mm -hmm. and not necessarily awkward fusions that just mash things together, but things that actually enhance and and, and aid it and facilitate the flavors. So he had the idea of just uh, creating deep flavors with these toasted chilies as opposed to the standard fermented chili paste that's often used in it. So Again, it's a traditional Chinese dish, but we love putting any kind of hot belly spin on it that we can. Uh, it does have a lovely heat and finish. And I loved how you talked about the, what is it, the holy trinity of Chinese cooking. So garlic, ginger, and scallions. Mm-hmm. That means it's what, in, in most every dish you make or what? Uh, it's in a majority of them, I would say. Um, I'm come from more of a French background and how we treat maybe our mirepoix in French cooking, your onion, celery, carrot. I would say that the Chinese mirepoix often is garlic, ginger, scallion. Jeff, how did you begin cooking Chinese food? 
Actually, I mean, I've always been a fan of Chinese food, and more than any other cuisine, it's what I crave. But I come from more of a French and Italian background. My culinary school was skewed that way. My first few restaurant jobs were in French bistros. But when I heard that Hop Alley was opening from Tommy, uh, the owner of one of my favorite restaurants, Uncle, I kind of reached out to him, and he reached out back. And I kind of jumped on board and dove in head first. And with his guidance, as well as lots of research on my own, I've just kind of surrounded myself, immersed myself in Chinese cooking. And it's been very rewarding. Indeed, this is Tommy's other restaurant. And uh, I, I want to ask you about the food scene a bit in Colorado, particularly the Chinese food scene. I mean, I, I imagine that it uh, is dwarfed by, say, San Francisco or New York. What's your assessment of... Chinese food in this area? Uh, you know, for a, I guess people refer to Denver as a second tier city as far as size, but I, you know, growing up here, we actually have a pretty prevalent uh, Asian food scene. You know, my, my family, actually my parents remember way back when, when the, the first time you could buy instant ramen noodles in Denver and they were so excited about it. But even now, you well, know, like top ramen. Yeah. I mean, you, the kind of stuff that's yep. like 12 cents at yep. the grocery store. <laughs> they were excited by that back in the, you know, the fifties when it first reached Denver. Okay. Um, but you know, we, you know, my parents, they skew towards Chinese restaurants. So, you know, when they go out, there's probably, you know, three, four places they choose from, but, um, guys, you know, our guys at the restaurant, they love going out to eat. So they've kind of, uh, conquered the the gamut of all the restaurants in Denver, and there's you know there's quite a bit for for being a, a smaller city. And we have you can you can find Cantonese food, you can find well, you, Szechuan do, food. Do you want to call out another uh, Chinese restaurant that you really? Of course, like? uh, I mean my family loves Star Kitchen. It's on Federal in Mississippi, and they is that dim sum? Uh, they do dim sum. They're they're kind of your uh, traditional Cantonese restaurant. They do dim sum during the day. They have the li- you know the fish tanks with the live lobsters. Uh, which you can order at night for dinner, and you know they do a great job. Uh, we love China Jade out in Aurora. They do more Szechuan cuisine, so spicier things. Um, there's even a place in the T- Denver Tech Center called Little Chengdu that does you know hand pulled noodles. Very quickly, give me uh, a dish I should try that would get me out of my comfort zone, beyond the lo mein and the fried rice. Very quickly. Uh, at Star Kitchen, I love the house uh, house style lobster. It's you know two lobsters that are. Uh, chopped up and stir-fried with uh, kind of this black pepper sauce that's really delicious. Um, another one is uh, they have a cold jellyfish salad. Cold jellyfish which... <laughs> salad. Certainly out of my comfort zone. Gentlemen, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Tommy Lee owns Hop Alley in Denver. Jeff Cox is the chef there and spoke to Ryan Warner at the start of the Chinese New Year. To find a recipe for Mapo Dofu, head to CPR.org. Stay with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. When Sherry Labidas was a high school senior in 1960s California, her class was challenged by a teacher to find out what they were willing to die for. And I wondered. I started looking for what I was willing to die for, if there was anything. And Thelma happened in the spring of 65, and I knew what I was willing to die for. Trekking to South Carolina, she joined the Southern Christian Leadership Conference on a voter registration project. 
That effort was led by a charismatic man named Louis Lefty Bryant. More than 50 years later, Libidus reconnects with Bryant's family on a PBS program, We'll Meet Again. The episode airs Tuesday night. We're joined now in California by Libidus, and here in our studio, one of Lefty Bryant's daughters, Somisha Johnson, who lives in Denver. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Good morning. How did you hear about the series and that PBS wanted to do an episode with the both of you, Somisha? Um, I got a call um, that, that they were uh, looking for my father, and um, I let him know that he had passed, and they told me about the show and and Sherry. So um, we said, yeah, we partake. <laughs> and, and Sherry, for you, you had a lot of information about this gentleman, so it was kind of natural that they, they reached out to you. They didn't know I had the information. Oh, I, I had see. a friend who knew, and he told them. Oh, I see. So they reached out to you and said, do you have something? And you're like, yeah, I've got all of this information about this person I want to find. Yes. Yeah. I had looked for him before. I had written a book in 2005, and I looked for everybody. It was about that project that summer, mm. and I looked for everybody on the list. And I found almost everyone, but not Lefty. So part of the reason you went to South Carolina back in the 60s was the news footage you saw from Selma. But it's one thing to watch something on television, I bet. How different was the reality of actually <laughs> being in the middle of it, you know? When I, when I first got to Atlanta for the training we had, I was met by this young man who said, you came here to die, didn't you? Because if you didn't, it's time you get back in that car and go back to New York or wherever it is you came from. Up until that time, it had all been pretty academic. It was all mind stuff. Yeah, I saw it. Yeah, I knew it was dangerous. That young man made me realize that it was – it made it a whole lot more personal and – I realized I might have done a little bit more than I intended. How so? Why did you stay? It's interesting. I, I think commitment. Uh, people say you know, that, that the people who were doing what I did were brave, for instance. But I think it was more like a, um, a religious commitment. Hmm. There was something that was terribly wrong that had to had to be righted, and I was like a missionary who was there to do that. So I couldn't quit. Now, Somisha, when you and your father, uh, sister Fanny Robinson, met with Sherry, she showed you photos from your father's time in South Carolina. What was it like seeing your dad as such a young man? It was. It took us a second to go. That's our dad. I mean, we knew him as beer belly, <laughs> lots of hair. So it was. It was like, which one is him? I mean, you could tell his smile and his eyes, but it, it didn't look like our dad. <laughs> so, were you surprised at how important your father was to the civil rights movement, especially in South Carolina? No, I. He's our whole life. He's been. Um, involved in making a change. Um, he helped me start a youth against racism organization at my school. 
um, because there was some racism going on and a friend of mine got burned um, by um, a Nazi group um, at her house. Um, So he was, even at a young age, we were taught, we were told about, um, you know, fighting for your rights, you know, you're black females, you got to work hard. And so it was something that we were raised around. Did he tell you stories about his time in South Carolina? He did. He now hearing the full story, he watered him way down. But he did. He did tell us. And it was never I did this. It was the movement did this. You know, um, we marched. Um, we did sit-ins. It was never, he never had an eye moment about it. He always would say, you know, you're able to vote, you know, when it came down to voting, you're able to vote because we went out and made sure that blacks could vote. You know, it was always, he always talked about the movement. <clears throat> and Sherry, did Lefty ever talk about people like Dr. King or Rosa Parks with you while you were with him in South Carolina? I hesitate because I don't remember. Hmm. I think I think we as a group had a pretty good idea about what Dr. King was doing and about uh Rosa Parks but I think we we were very focused on one place in the world and how that place was going to become bigger. We knew we fit fit in to an overall pattern of things people were doing, but I I don't remember I it it would have been just conversation. It yeah. wasn't anything that I actually remember. There was a scene in, in the program uh, where you're followed by a group of whites and, and lefties actually attacked and that was one of the photos that uh, that you showed to uh, to the daughters. I mean, had he ever shared that with you? That photograph when you were younger? No, not not with not with us. I mean, I've never seen a photo of him as a young man. Um, we've I've heard the stories of him being chased by KKK and shot at, and but never um, never seen a photo of him helpless. I think that was probably the shock of it when we saw it. It was. My sister and I have never seen my dad in a helpless state ever. Mm. You know, I, I've i seen him walk up to people that are in fights in the middle and go, hey, stop. You know, and I've, it just was a shock to see him in a helpless state. And Sherry, that sounds like the, the gentleman that you describe in this program. Like you were there in the scene. You're being chased by these cars. Put us there. I mean, what was that experience like with him leading the charge? We had been at a restaurant, Howard's Restaurant in Monk's Corner, and we had tried to get in. And I think it was our third attempt, and they locked us out. And then we had – and we set up a picket line. They wouldn't open as long as we were there. But then carloads of white men started arriving. And finally, the police, in order to stop the problem that could arise – uh, told the the men that they had to leave and that what we were doing was legal. They didn't want to go, and we thought that we had taken enough chances, so we got in our car and we left, and we're driving down the road singing freedom songs and having this most wondrous time. This was our first attempt to do anything like like a, a picket line and to get into a restaurant and and we're singing and then all of a sudden somebody calls out here they come and we were hit from the back by one of the cars that was 
at the restaurant. And they would pull away and then hit us and pull away and then hit us. And then another car pulled in front of us. And so we were doing this kind of squeeze play down the two-lane highway. And I was driving. (laughs) They hadn't taught me how to drive to do something like this. And I slammed on – and everybody – well, I slammed on the brakes. The car quit. And I couldn't get it to start. And – We're all silent and scared to death, rolling up our windows, and Lefty's sitting there singing freedom songs. And they get out, the men get out of the car, and they're beating on the roof of our car and on the front of our car, and we're, we're stone silent, except for Lefty. So Misha is shaking her head. She's shaking her head saying, yep, I understand (laughs) that. I understand that. How does, how does that, uh, uh, well, so, so they broke the window to get him out. Oh, and then they they did attack him, and there is that photo yes. you, you oh, can yeah. see where he is just on the ground, and he is he is passed out. He is out. So yeah, he's you, unconscious. He's singing freedom songs. What, what do you what do you think of that? That's my dad. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I just he's he's always gonna be not let anything get him down. I mean, he's gonna be strong, and he's gonna take the higher road and. That's just it doesn't shock me. <laughs> now, there were some twists that were disclosed during this episode. For one share, you heard that Lefty was involved in a bombing of a bank in California. That wasn't true. And then listen to this. There was this, which happened when you eventually found a contact number for him. After 50 years of wondering, she is tantalizingly close to finding out where Lefty is. Hello? Hi, this is Sherry Labidas. Uh-huh. And I'm Pat Jamison suggested that I talk to you if I wanted to find out something more about where Lefty is. Okay. Can you help me? Um well he's deceased. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. Ah. And I'm not quite sure what to say to you. Lefty died in 2008. And Samisha, you've wondered if the physical things he went through during his time in the civil rights movement, like getting beat up, was a factor in health issues he had later in life. Yeah, he um, struggled from strokes. um, And uh, the doctor once pulled us in and said, you know, he had a lot of contusions on his brain and it must have been many strokes. They couldn't explain it. And um, my uh, brother-in-law actually played for the NFL and got, went through that process of the concussions. And so my sister and I kind of put two and two together and like, that's probably those contusions that he had. Um, and just looking at some of the side effects of that and things that he's been through that kind of all fit that most likely, you know, being hit so many times played a part in his his health conditions. And Sherry, wrapping it up here, what was it like meeting the daughters of this man that was so influential in your life? I was so thankful they were there. I had I had truly been afraid that I would find Lefty and I would find out that he had been beaten to death and left in a swamp somewhere. He got that kind of a response from people. And to find out he'd had a very happy home life and two delightful daughters was a great pleasure for me. 
And what about you, Sumisha? How has it been processing all of this? Um, it's it's nice to see. I wish he could be here just to I don't think he's not one to put the light on him, but just to be able to see Sherry again. And I think he would have got a kick out of that. And um, I, I enjoyed it because I learned a lot more and got to be in contact with some people that from his past. So it's been a great pr- uh, process to be a part of. And you've made a new friend, it sounds like. Yes, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> I got two friends. <laughs> Thank you to the both of you for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. Sherry Libidis and Sumisha Johnson are part of a television program, We'll Meet Again, airing Tuesday night on PBS. Johnson is the daughter of Lefty Bryant, a civil rights activist from the 1960s. Libidis worked with Bryant on a voter registration project in South Carolina during that time. And that's our show. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day.